Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Maria Cabré, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry and other entrepreneurs beyond the world of brewing. I'm sitting in for Jonathan this week. Our first guest is our only guest this week. He is the general manager and head brewer at Benedictine Brewery at the Mount Angel Abbey in Mount Angel, Oregon. He brews beer, which is crafted for a higher purpose. The monastery supports itself and its mission to help the poor, partly through the sale of the beer they produce. He has done numerous collaborations with craft beer brewers from around Oregon. He's here to share his understanding of the monastic tradition of brewing beer, which dates back to the early Middle Ages. We'll also find out how he answered the calling not only to become a monk, but also to become a craft beer brewer. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Father Martin Grassel. How are you doing? I'm great this morning. How are you? Great. Um, so to put it into perspective, during the Middle Ages, beer was safer to drink than water. So women made it for everyone, like we just discussed, in the household to drink, even children. The monks took it to another level. What are some of the innovations in beer making that the monks are credited with? Uh, monks and innovations in beer making, that's a long history. I would point to uh, maybe about three things. One is just the organization of a brewery. What's it look like? What's in it? There is an architectural plan. It's called the Plan of St. Gall. St. Gall is a monastery. It is a plan for an entire monastery, from the church to the cloister to breweries, three breweries, in fact, on, on the premises. And it's the uh, something significant about the plan of St. Gall uh, puts it into perspective. It's the only major architectural plan surviving from the fall of the Roman Empire for about 800 years. Oh, wow. So this plan for a monastery is, is really significant in architectural planning. And it's said that the layout of the brewery would be recognized by any contemporary uh, brewer, brewers of our own times. So monks constructed the the basic layout of a production brewery. And that plan of St. Gall was never fully built, but the breweries were. They There were hundreds of monastic breweries across Europe in the Middle Ages, and they were uh, just replicating that plan of St. Gall. So there's one big innovation by monks. Another would be uh, roughly the same time that Plan of St. Gall is from the ninth century. Uh, is From about the same time, we find monks using hops. So monks are the first on record using hops and beer. Wow. Does that mean nobody else used them before monks? Not necessarily. Right. We're the first on written record to be using them. And Hildegard of Bingen is often credited with being the first to talk about them. But actually, uh, before her, a century or two, there's a Benedictine abbot uh, from in France who mentioned using uh, hops in beer. And from the century before, monks are known to have had uh, a hop field in, in their monastery in Germany. So it could go back further than the written record. So using hops and beer, that was great because it, it helped preserve the beer, gave it a longer shelf life before it went sour or something, and also just improved the quality of it flavor-wise. The, the hops were a big advancement over the herbal mixtures that were used before that, what was called gruit. Right. So... Uh, so there's two big things from uh, the first millennium. And then monks are also credited with developing 
uh, brewing equipment, like uh, using copper vessels instead of wooden, which can uh, is efficiency, sanitization, the longevity of equipment, uh, and also a very important development in the history of beer, lagering. Uh, ales were the standard until, um, what, about the 15th century or so. But uh, how did lagering develop? It's thought to be by monks cellaring their beer in what would be you know natural cold storage. And over time, through like the Darwinian process of natural selection, <laughs> uh, certain um, species of yeast would settle out and and they would stay active. And so when you refill those barrels, uh, those that yeast strain would be the dominant one. And that's how lagering is supposed to have been invented. And it was monks that did that. So uh, just because we have a long history in brewing, we we had the opportunity to make a lot of innovations. Yeah, actually, speaking of another innovation, the monks of the Middle Ages also learned how to use water to produce beer at three different ABV levels. ABV stands for alcohol uh, by volume. Who were the three beers brewed for? Well, okay, so this would be a generalization. Uh, We could say, in general, monks were known to make their highest quality beer uh, their strongest beer for guests because that was sold. That would be for retail. So you make your best product for them. And then they had uh, the, the medium grade product, which should be their own table beer. Now, monks don't need high alcohol beer to live on. Uh, that would be against the rule. Um, we already talked about what's in the rule of Benedict. There is a chapter uh, where St. Benedict addresses how much wine a monk should drink. Hmm. Now, Benedict was Italian, where they have wine. <laughs> Had he been German, he would have been talking about how much beer you can drink. Right. Um, and that question did come up later in history. But uh, the rule says, you know, monks shouldn't drink alcohol, shouldn't drink wine at all. But since that's not really um, feasible to try to impose, uh, limit it. So it's like uh, just a couple glasses a day. So monks don't need uh, high alcohol beverages, uh, but they did use beer uh, at their table uh, when, yes, particularly when water is not safe to drink, but it's also nutrient. So, um, So there's the best beer for your guests, and then there's the sort of ordinary quality beer for your own use, And then part of the charitable work of the monastery would be making beer for the needy. So that might have just been given away. It would have been uh, the lower alcohol. So you you put your, uh, you don't put as much ingredients into it uh, because it is meant to to give away. Um, So who knows how much they would have on hand that they could spare, like, you know, how much malt you've got. But those would be the three grades then for your guests, for your own use, and then for the needy. There's a saying in Europe, beer is liquid bread. I read in a few places that monks downed, on average, four liters of beer each day for nutrition and as a supplement during long periods of fasting. Do you have any personal experience with drinking beer during a fast, and does it really help to sustain you? Well, I haven't tried that myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are good stories about uh, monks and fasting with beer. That's how uh, the Doppelbach, you know, the legend of the Doppelbach. Yes. That uh, is actually friars, I believe, not monks right. that that made that. But they they made it for sustenance during the, the fast times when they weren't allowed to eat solid food. So you would drink it instead. Uh, technicalities of fasting, I guess. Um <laughs> And they, but they thought that beer was really good, so maybe too good to have during Lent. So they sent a barrel to the Pope and in crossing the Alps without refrigeration, the beer spoiled. And the Pope said, This is a perfect beer for Lent. So, (laughs) yes, have your bad beer uh, for your time of penance. Um, 
But uh, no, I, I haven't tried that myself. I have read a couple articles, though, by people who have tried this for Lent. You know, so Lent is 40 days. Right. So for my period of 40 days, I will abstain from solid food and just drink beer. And they wrote articles about that. And the article said similar things. They actually lost weight during that time. Uh, they felt good. They felt better. Tells you something about the food that we're used to eating, maybe. Uh, but they didn't notice ill effects from it. Uh, from uh, would I advocate everybody trying that? No, I, I don't think that would be a good idea for, yeah, I don't for think society so. in general. <laughs> but my own experience, um, there are fast days. And when you are fasting, you, know, you get hungry, especially if you're working. And beer actually does, you know, it gives you energy. It, it does give you some nutrition. Um, so um, it doesn't violate a fast. There's nothing wrong with it, as long as we're not getting intoxicated. Um, but that's that's the limit of my experience with it. I could see someone getting intoxicated pretty quickly with some uh, Doppelbox, given the high ABV of them. and uh, Especially I'm, when you're on an empty stomach. Exactly. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking. You're working, yes. I'm sitting here thinking, yeah. Eureka, I'm going to do a 40-day beer fest. Yeah? Well, <laughs> yeah. you just missed See Lent. how much I lose. No, what do you mean? For weight loss purposes. Oh. <laughs> this could go viral, Father Martin. <laughs> we might have something on our hands here. <laughs> Okay, so going back to the rule, it outlines the monastery's obligation to show hospitality to travelers and pilgrims. How did the monks of the Middle Ages carry out that edict? I think we kind of talked about that with the the three different kinds of beers, right? The higher ABV yeah. was for guests. Yeah. What else did the yeah, monks we, we do? And just talking about how uh, monks got into brewing. Uh, but it goes back to that time that we now call the Dark Ages. So something like the 6th through the 10th centuries when, you know, there, Europe um, was sort of on a, a manner system for uh, societal structure. Uh, it was very agricultural. There weren't big cities. There were no Motel 6s. There were no Hiltons. Where did travelers go? And St. Benedict himself experienced this, you know, writing his rule in the 6th century. He says, monasteries will never lack guests. You'll always have them. So when you're a safe haven for travelers, guess what? You're going to have them all the time. And he, he notes that uh, the wealthy come as well as the poor. So they had quite a variety. Um, but the... Um, the role of hospitality in the rule is really uh, a work of charity. It is just a Christian thing to do. You welcome the stranger, you help the needy, uh, you you shelter them. If they need clothing, you give it to them. Yeah. If they need food, you give it to them. Yeah, just as Christ so, would have. Yes. So I've read that there are currently eight Trappist breweries in Northern Europe. What does make their beer so special? Because I have had a few Trappist beers. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to see what, what actually makes it so special. Yeah, I think they've got two things going for them in that respect. One is, you know, what you already mentioned, their location. They're Belgian. Uh, at least most of them are. Mm -hmm. And those Belgian beers are are just incredible. Um, that their yeasts are so flavorful and the way they make beer, it's almost like anything goes. So it's a very big contrast to Germany where they have their purity laws. Yep. Uh, you can only use um, barley and water and hops. Yep. And later when yeast was discovered, they had to add yeast to that. But you can't throw in sugar or hamburgers or anything else <laughs> in your beer. Yeah. Uh, in Belgium, Oh, they're known for using uh, candy syrup yes. and different types of sugars. You can you can throw in um, your your candy syrup to increase the gravity of your wort, which increases the alcohol. But um, also, 
kind of thins out, lightens the body of the beer, adds flavors to it that you don't get from uh, from the malts. And it it just makes something unique. And you've got the lambics uh, and stuff, the, the, the sours there. So the Belgians just make fantastic beers, big variety of things, best beers in the world. And that's the heritage that those Trappist monks basically work from. So that's the first thing they have going in their favor. The second thing, so the first then is nationality, culture, uh, what the region provides. The second thing is their monastic identity, I think. How do monks work? And monks do projects over time. We here uh, at, at Mount Angel Abbey have the same mentality. Um, we live forever. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that's the vision of eternal life. We live forever. So we're going to be doing things for a long time. And let's find better ways of doing it as we go. So monks are, are known for improving products from uh, champagne to Benedictine liqueur. Those those are monastic inventions, too. And you just make them better over time. So I think you could just say those those Trappist monks knew that they were making good products, but as you do it time and again uh, over the years, and you're, you're teaching uh, your next generation how to brew, what your techniques are, uh, how, maybe how you malt, um, how you brew, how you ferment, uh, how you condition things, the next generation finds its little ways to make improvements too. And incrementally, bit by bit, right? you just make better products. We should have more. <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back with Father Martin to talk about his path to becoming a brewer right after these messages. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Father Martin, tell us where you you grew up. Well, I come from North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, the town of about 40,000 people. Where did you go to college? The University of North Dakota in my hometown, Grand Forks there. Um, I studied computer science there. They had a good computer science program. They're also known for their aviation program and, of course, their hockey program. (laughs) So. What, what kind of beer did they drink at uh, North Dakota? <laughs> uh, when I lived there, it was probably uh, Miller and, uh, and Budweiser and Coors. Oh, wow. macro, okay. macro. Your tastes have evolved. <laughs> Speaking of evolution, you were an engineer who undertook a pretty dramatic career change. How did that even happen? Yeah. Oh, that's... That's the long story. Uh, yeah, I was an engineer for about 10 years, and I worked for Honeywell uh, that whole time. And I kind of look at that as uh, a golden age of my life. You're a, a young person in your 20s. You're learning skills. You're learning how to live and um, building up, uh, learning how to be a contributor in society. And during that time, well, let's see. I come from a family that did not have uh, a real active faith life. Uh, we never went to church or anything. But I've always had this sense of, of God being present in my life. And when I got out on my own after after college and living on my own and working, um, that became more important for me. It's like, what's my life about? The introspective time of my life. And I eventually got involved in my local parish. So I was baptized Catholic, even if I didn't do much with that as a child. And as I got involved in my local parish, people started thinking I was the priest or telling me I should be a priest. And this crazy idea got in my mind and and I couldn't get rid of it. I didn't want to be a priest. I was happy being an engineer. But 
the thought was for a couple of years, it was just kind of relentless and I, I couldn't put it to rest. So I just had to go check this out. Either it will be so or it won't be so. And I, I ended up, um, I was looking around at, uh, you know, vocation wise, uh, where might I fit in or what might I be called to? And there wasn't internet yet. So this is back in like the early nineties. Um, so you're looking at publications, uh, like vocations magazines. Uh, and, uh, I did meet with the vocations director of our diocese. So at diocesan priesthood and, I met with the Carmelites, I met with the Franciscans, I met with a small religious order in Phoenix, that's where I was living, and ended up, um, on the advice of my parish priest, uh, just go with the diocese and get started and see where it leads. So I signed up with the diocese, the bishop sent me to Mount Angel Seminary in Oregon. And this was my first exposure to monastic life because Mount Angel Seminary is a work of Mount Angel Abbey. It's, it's, uh, you know, the monks of the Abbey own and run that seminary. So this is where I was introduced to mon- monastic life and I instantly had an attraction to it. So I was in the seminary for four years and then just discerned very solidly that God's calling me to monastic life. And that's how I got where I am. I entered the monastery in 1999, uh, came to Mount Angel in 1995 as a seminarian. So four years later, entered the monastery. That was 24 years ago. And I'm, I'm just home. I just feel at home. Can you describe how you felt the first time you, you went to Mount Angel? No, the first time uh, I came here, uh, I actually arrived in the evening. Uh, it was a long trip from Arizona. And I got here late, and uh, Mount Angel Abbey is on a hilltop. Uh, We call it Mount Angel. There's uh, a town at the foot of the hill, and you find your way through town. And and I passed this uh, Gothic-style church on the way in. I thought, oh, that might be like the seminary. Oh, no, that was St. Mary's Parish. Beautiful church. Uh, Then I found my way up the hill. And it's wooded with Douglas fir, and oh, wow. you just have this feeling of peace coming up it, even if it's twilight. And it feels like you're stepping out of one world into another. So um, I, I got to the top of the hill, um, parked, and went into a building, and uh, there were the seminarians doing the orientation for that year. I met them and we ordered a pizza because <laughs> I had missed dinner. So, um, yeah, it felt like stepping out of one world into another, um, a whole new world that had a lot of promise. Uh, we're, we're rich in discovery. Wow, that was, I, I got goosebumps just hearing that. Amazing, so, yeah. um, how long does it take to become a monk and what's involved in the training? It's all about the authenticity of your vocation. So we believe that God has a plan for every person in the world. And we either cooperate that or we do cooperate with that, or we do our own thing. And once you discern what God's calling you to, what you think God's calling you to, you have to feel that out. So that's what I originally did with priesthood is, is this really for me? Is this what God wants of me? Um, about monastic life, when you start thinking about that, um, it starts in your own head and in, in your own prayer. Is this what you want for me? Is Can I see myself doing this? And then you have to get in touch with the monastery you might be interested in. And monasteries have vocations, directors. That's the monk who's in charge of people inquiring about joining the community. And you'll talk to him. He kind of feels out where you are and and, you know, whether you seem like a credible candidate. And then you would come visit, make a retreat or, or two. Um, serious candidates then would stay in the monastery for maybe a week. And you get to know this community and its type of life, its lifestyle and rhythm, what kind of work they do, the people in it. And they get to know you. 
and kind of judge potential fit. And then you would apply. And if you're accepted, you enter the monastery as what we call a postulant. And at Mount Angel, that's typically about a six-month period. And during that time, you're, you're almost living like a guest in the monastery. It's a time to just be here and just try to fit in. You know, don't cause trouble. Uh, don't disturb <laughs> things. And But just feel out uh, the rhythm of the life. Adjust to it. See if you adjust to it. And if you do, then you would enter the novitiate. Uh, you're a novice for a year and a day. At least that's um, that's the period in our monastic congregation. And we start the novitiate on uh, what September 7th. The novitiate is a time of more intense formation. You have classes. You're, you're under the novice master. You pay attention to... Uh, your understanding, growing understanding of monastic life, the rationale for things you do, the ascetic side of it, the prayer side of it, uh, the liturgy, how you're fitting in. And at the end of that time, if you've made progress and you've discerned you still feel called here, then you would make your petition to make vows. The community of uh, the solemnly professed monks vote on you, whether they allow you to make those vows or not. Your first vows are for three years. They're temporary vows. But now you've gotten to the point where we know, uh, at least have a sense of fitting in, and things seem to be working. At least there's enough potential for me that I'm accepted in vows for three years. And those vows are binding. I'm no longer, uh, you can't just send me away anymore. And I can't just freely walk away. I made this commitment for three years. And during that time, then, we often will send, um, we call these junior monks, the monks in their temporary vows. We often send them to classes, theology classes or philosophy or something in our seminary. They get education that way. They're also assigned particular work. So as a junior monk, I worked for a year in the bookstore and bought books and catalog books and set up the new sales system. My second year as a junior monk, I was the abbot's secretary. Mm. And that was a very different job than any I've ever had. Uh, I don't like secretarial work. <laughs> I can say that. Uh, much rather build something. And my last year, since I had enough uh, seminary behind me already, my final year as a junior monk, I was back in school uh, preparing for the diaconate ordination. Uh, so you have your three years as a junior monk. At the end of that time, your options are, I can leave. I can extend my temporary vows again. We can do that up to nine years. Or I can petition for solemn vows, which would make me a lifetime member here, uh, solemnly binding. And some monks do leave. Some some extend their vows by a year or two. Um, and then others uh, will make that solemn profession. Um, but step by step, from postulancy to novitiate to the juniorate to the solemnly professed, uh, I think of it as uh, a half-life. About half the postulants enter the novitiate. About half the novices make vows. About half of those junior monks make their solemn vows. So people get weeded out as we go. But, but you decided to make your solemn vows at the end of your three years, correct? That's correct. Yes, I'm a, I, I made those solemn vows in 2003. So on the path to becoming a brewer, two things happened that might be considered divine inspiration. One, you were reading the diary of the founding prior of Mount Angel Abbey from 1885 and saw a list of facilities. What did you discover? Oh, let's see. I was actually working on a history project uh, for the town of Mount Angel here. As it's the town I mentioned at the foot of our hill. It's about 5,000 people, small town. We were looking for uh, a grant to establish a heritage trail. So a walking trail around town hitting the historical sites. So I was in the archives uh, looking for the location of our first monastery. So we were established in 1882 
And the first buildings burnt down in 1890, what was that? 1892, I think just 10 years later. And those uh, those buildings were not located where the current ones are. So where were they? Because that's where we wanted to put the plaque. In doing that research in the archives, that's when I came across uh, the the entry in the founding prior's diary. So prior Adelhelm from uh, Engelberg Abbey in Switzerland. He was writing back to his abbot in Switzerland, just giving an account of what the facilities consist of in this new monastery here that Engelberg had established. And he mentions the church, the monastery, the college building, the schools, pig barns, horse barns, and the mill. And, and the last thing he mentions is the brewery. Hmm. So I guess it shouldn't be any surprise when you're founded by Swiss or German monks that they had a brewery on site. So I suspect that it was not a commercial brewery. Right. It was probably just for household use, um, used by the monks and maybe the students. And I also suspect that it burned in that fire in the 1890s. That's a pretty but, cool discovery. It is. Yeah, so, it was a little bit of a, to come uh, across them. a little yeah, a little bit of an uh foreshadowing of what your life was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So the second was that someone offered you some old home brewing equipment which you initially declined. What changed your mind? Oh. Yeah, that that's a good story. Um I was in my office here one day and one of our development office workers knocked on my door saying she and her husband had some homebrew equipment they weren't going to use anymore. Might I be interested in trying it out? And I thought, that's the that's kind of preposterous. I've never thought about brewing beer. So I said, thank you, but no, I don't have any interest in that. Uh, in fact, my appreciation for beer had been a recent development. Uh, I mentioned, uh, you, know, you, you asked um, uh, what beer they had in North Dakota, and you heard my reply. Well, I never could understand why anybody wanted to drink that stuff. <laughs> and, um, it wasn't until I got to Oregon and uh, discovered Oregon beer, um, particularly Black Butte Porter from Deschutes Brewery. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. You know, it in Florida, too. Yep. Um, that was like, wow, this this is good stuff. And so what else does this the shoots make? And discovered Mirror Pond and Red Chair and Obsidian Stout and stuff. And that that was my exposure to good beer. And well, what else is here? You know, we've got Full Sail Brewery and um and uh, Rogue and all kinds of good ones. So I just started sampling beer when I got out and had the opportunity. Um, so that was pretty recent. I still didn't have any thoughts of brewing. What changed my mind, uh, so I sent her away. I remember when I said, back when I was an engineer, I had these crazy thoughts about priesthood that I couldn't get out of my mind. Yep. That well, that's what part. happened with this brewing. There I had you this go. crazy <laughs> thought that I couldn't get out of my mind. And it went on for a month. And, you know, before priesthood was two years, I couldn't get rid of that thought. This time I, I thought a month is enough. So I went and asked her if she still had it. She brought it in. I read uh, the Palmer book, How to Brew. And you know, there was a, a kettle there and a capper, or maybe a bottle of filler and just, you know, a few odds and ends like that. And um, I, I read, I went through the book and was fascinated by the brewing process. It reminded me of being an engineer. Yeah. And yeah, so that's how I got into it. Um, just that crazy, obsessive thought, which was meaningful to me. So we ask almost every brewer on the beer hour, what was your first homebrew and was it drinkable? Oh, my first homebrew was the Cincinnati Pale Ale from Palmer's book. Uh, simple recipe in yeah. there. And I made that, so I had my my little assembly of homebrew, uh, secondhand homebrew equipment. I didn't have a place to do it here uh, at the Abbey, uh, but I had a good friend who lived in town at that time. So I went down to her house, and we boiled up the, uh, the wort in her kitchen. And let's see, we got supplies from... Uh, Steinbart's in Portland, uh, an old home brewing shop. 
and it was we all grain? that ward. Sorry, it was all grain. Uh, no, no, this was um, the malt I, extract. I can't remember. Yes, the one in the can. Uh, I don't yeah, remember in the, can. the brand. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But it was liquid extract. I remember that. Uh, we boiled up. We chilled it in the laundry sink in the garage. So <laughs> that that was fun. And I remember, you know, things splashing around, something falls into the wart, or if you wonder <laughs> if it's contaminated, and not really sure what you're doing, getting that thing into a carboy and put in the basement of the press building here at the Abbey. It was pretty cold. It took off slowly, if I remember right. Uh, but eventually it fermented out. And I think I, I had a Croizen mess that overflowed. And uh, that was the first mess I had to clean up like that. Um, and when it was all done, I served it to the monks and we actually enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was good. Um, despite all the mistakes, it turned out well. And that was encouraging. And I did a couple other extract brews, but then I moved right into, um, the, the all grain brewing and had to start putting together a system. That was a lot of fun. So, so, um, that was before you decided that the monastery needed a new revenue stream, correct? Or did those things yes. occur simultaneously? Oh, they were about the same time. Was it a- probably both around 2010? Okay. Yeah. So when you when you were getting into home brewing, did that that thought cross your mind that maybe we could start brewing beer here? Well, um, yeah. What brought up the idea of starting Benedictine Brewery here at Mount Angel Abbey? Uh, a number of things. Uh, one, I already mentioned that the there is a, a history of brewing here at the Abbey. So I mentioned the founding monks had a brewery. Uh, Abbot Nathan told me that a previous abbot, Abbot Anselm, who died about 1990, roughly, had once told him that the brothers were brewing beer in the fort, which is a very old building here on the hilltop. And, but it wasn't very good. He didn't know what it was or who was brewing it. But we do know that monks were, no surprise, monks were doing home brewing here. And then in the 80s, when the craft brewing industry started up, um, Mount Angel Abbey did enter brewing partnership. Um, and I don't know, uh, I wasn't here at that time. I can't say how that took off, but uh, it did not seem to to have good sound vision, or it was a three-partner partnership, and maybe there just wasn't common vision, and maybe not a lot of initiative or something, but that, that floundered for some years before uh, it was finally dissolved. And I thought, you know, that, that doesn't leave a good taste in somebody's mouth when, when an enterprise like that does not succeed. So by this time, uh, I've, I was procurator uh, of the Abbey. Uh, Abbot Nathan appointed me to that job in 2008, and I still have it. The procurator is the monk in charge of the business side of our affairs. So looking at our financials, I thought it would be good if we started to develop a new revenue source for ourselves, you know, to help cover expenses down the road. And we considered a number of things. Um, I proposed some things and was really reluctant to put brewery on there because of the past experience. But I put it on the list, the very last thing on the list anyways. And we had a community meeting to talk about possibilities for a new enterprise. So we made, we'd make a little presentation about five things on the list. We'd talk about the first one and the second and have some discussion and just do a show of hands. Are we interested in in looking at this or not? And one by one, it was like, no, 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 no. Then we got down to brewery, which I was kind of reluctant to even mention. We had our discussion. And um, when we did the straw vote, it was like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah. 20 yes, four no, or something like that. So, you know, we definitely, we still had interest in it. And I think my home brewing helped generate that interest. Uh, here, I'm just a monk with no background in this uh, to mention, and making beer that 
I guess we like. And, um, but and here it is. So it brought a credibility to the sense that we could do this. So I think it was important. I would even say that God kind of put you on that path with the engineering, you know, and then it put you into the brewing path. So, yeah, yeah, I, I really see the divine inspiration in what I would call that, uh, that undying thought, that yeah. obsessive thought, brew beer, brew beer. Like, why? I don't, I don't know how. That it consumes you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So follow so, those thoughts. Yeah. So can you tell us about the brewing setup now? Okay. Yeah. Now we, let's see. So we established the legal entity, Benedict and Brewery LLC in 2013. And as soon as we did, people started asking, where's your beer? Well, we don't have any yet. We just, you know, just established the entity to have the name. <laughs> so shortly after that, we had to start doing contract brew. We had to start developing recipes and we did some contract brewing just to satisfy this demand. In the meantime, we had the des- we were trying to fit the brewery into existing buildings, but we have older buildings. Now, some of them are near 100 years old, um, and code upgrades become prohibitive when, when you're looking at that. Uh, it would have been great to build the brewery in our old dairy barn, but an off-the-cuff estimate from a contractor or an engineer was like two million in code upgrades for fire and seismic and stuff. Oh wow! So not even feasible. So we had to make a decision: either pull the plug on the project, or we're going to build a building for it. And we decided to build the building. There wasn't even much of a question. Yeah, we want to do this. Let's build the building. So, uh, what kind of building? Do we want a metal building? Do we want a stick frame wooden building, or do we want a nice timber frame building? And here it's important to know that Mount Angel Abbey has a tree farm. Uh, we've got some acres in the hills that are founding monks acquired through homesteading or purchase, and it's Douglas fir. And so we just tacked on a couple truckloads of uh, Douglas fir trees to a harvest we were doing. And Hull Oaks Mill near Corvallis here, they do a lot of charitable work. So They gave us a good deal milling for us and New Energy Works uh, with an office here in McMinnville uh, did the timber frame design. And then we had uh, just a good old fashioned barn raising on November 11th, 2017. I remember the date because November 11th is the feast day of St. Martin of Tours, who is my monastic patron, Father Martin. So we built started building the building then. And we also had a five-barrel. We were originally going to go with the 10-barrel system, but after doing some consulting, uh, we decided to switch the business model to to tap room rather than uh, distribution and ended up scaling down the brewing system. We went with five, five barrels, and uh, it was made by Metalcraft Fabrications uh, here in Portland. Um, they went bankrupt. They, they closed. We were one of the, their last customers, but we got a good brewing system from them. That's what we brew on now. So it's uh, is it an automated um, mash tun? Yeah, oh. the, the only automated controls are things like the temperature controllers. Right. So, yeah, it's manual labor. Okay. Yeah, we have a, a 15 barrel manual mash tun here. So it's a lot yes. of fun in the in the Florida summers. <laughs> so you also grow your own hops on property. Can you tell us what, what kind of hops you grow? Oh, there's a good variety. Um, the hop farm goes back to the 1880s, too. The founding monks not only acquired uh, the tree farm, they acquired farmland around the hill. So farming is a traditional monastic way to support yourself. And those founding monks were thinking of the future, what's going to make us sustainable. And just right away, uh, hops were planted on the on the farm. So from the 1880s, almost continuously, there have been hops. So uh, in the 1970s, the there was a change in the tax laws, and the monks could no longer actively run the farm themselves. 
we're a nonprofit, so uh, we couldn't actively run that enterprise. Uh, so we've leased it out to Valley Hops Farm uh, ever since then. So for about 40 years, 45 years, they've been our tenant. And they continue to grow the hops. And they've got probably a dozen varieties on the farm. There's, of course, uh, Willamette and Cascade, like Liberty. Uh, I love Liberty hops. They grow here. Uh, Strata, I, I think, was uh, a hop that they themselves might have developed, and Mosaic have been grown here. Very popular. Uh, Sterling, so uh, a big variety. That's and so cool. we get those hops um, free of charge uh, for use in our brewery. So hops from our own land, got to have that. You have a few big annual events. Can you tell us when and what they are, when they happen and what they are? Okay. Our, the biggest annual events uh, are Mount Angel Abbeys. And those are in, there's two of them in July. One is our Bach Festival. That's been going on for about 50 years. It is uh, an art event. So music, as, uh, as the name implies, uh, meant to pr- help um, encourage and promote uh, musical culture. So there's a, uh, it starts at Vespers in the evening, or, or evening prayer, 515. And immediately after evening prayer, there's a performance in the church. Then there's dinner on the lawn in front of the, the monastery and the church. And then there's the main performance uh, in uh, the Damien Center, which is a gymnasium um, auditorium. Uh, so it's music, uh, typically a classical broke or guitar or something. And that goes on for three nights. The last Thursday or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in July is the Bach Festival. The other big event is the St. Benedict Festival. And that's earlier in July. So that's an event that the monks came up with. Um, it was the evolution of a fundraising event that we didn't really identify with, an, an art and wine festival. Um, art and wine festivals will draw people to you. And, you know, they come check it out. You can raise some money doing that. But we weren't really interested. That doesn't speak for us. Uh, we don't empathize with that. So we remolded it into uh, something we'd never heard of before. It's, it's an original creation, a St. Benedict Festival where we highlight uh, what it means to be a monk, especially here at Mount Angel Abbey. And I think one of the, the big attractions at the festival every year is the beer. So there's always something new in beer, and we have the longest lines of any uh, tent at the festival. Um, other than that, other events during the year, uh, we do have some like fundraising events, um, those are more for private audience. Uh, little events we have at the brewery. Uh, what's very popular is Christmas carols. Um, the weekend before Christmas, um, the monks will come down and do caroling. And it, the place is packed. People love it. They, they want to hear it. They want to come participate in that. Yeah. And we did something similar for St. Patrick's Day this year. And the place was packed. The people just want to come and and celebrate who they are. So um, little events like that have a big impact on the community. It's a beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful thing. I have one last question for you, Father. You stated that the beer from Benedictine Brewery may be the only beer in America that is blessed by a priest at each step in the brewing process. Why is that important? Why is that? Well, I might want to make a little allowance. I don't know what they do at uh, Country Monks Brewing or in Marblehead. Uh, They might bless it step by step, too. But the point would stand that it's a rarity that it gets blessed. Uh, What does that do? Um, If you're a person of faith, it means you're invoking God's help in everything you do. And things always work better when we work with God, and that means doing things by God's will, not by our own. So we're looking for the way, and it brings to mind the the cooperative, creative 
aspects of work. You know, God made all things, but the world consists of a lot of raw materials for human beings to work with. So we refine creation, uh, the, the created goods. We apply that human ingenuity with divine inspiration and divine gifts that he, that God bestows on us to do things uh, to create it and uh, to, to to make new things and in the end there's a benedictine motto uh, it comes at the end of the rule it, i like it in latin ut in omnibus glorificator deus which means in all things may god be glorified that's the end to which uh, a monk does everything that's the end to which a christian is supposed to live for everything so the beer we make just like any other work we do, you want it to be the best it can be because that's for the glory of God. And I think we find that on our labels too. We brew for a higher purpose. And when people come to Benedict and Brewery, um, you know, our, the value proposition of our business is not just beer, come buy a beer. It's the setting of the tap room. It, it's on the side of the hill Across the street are hops fields. There's no highway with traffic noise. Um, there's no urban um, urban clutter, urban noise. It, it It's just beauty. You can stare across the valley, see the mountains in the distance, and, and there's peace. It's a very contemplative environment. That's what we want people to come and experience. Uh, people may or may not know that Benedictine monks own and operate this brewery. Um, but we, what we want them to discover when they come is the goodness of God. Um, so prayer is the way we make that happen. And step by step, um, I don't know, who am I to brew beer? Uh, what's my education in it? All I know is that it turns out pretty good. And uh, I can't take all the credit for that, given who I am. Well, there you go. What a perfect answer to a last question. I want to thank you so much, Father Martin, for coming on our show. Um, this has been quite a history lesson and, and just beautiful to hear your, your story and the path that, that you were chosen to take, your purpose in life. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. Thank you. Thank you, Father Martin. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Father Martin Grassel, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. You'll be able to listen to John next week. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at our new time, 6 p.m. Eastern time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the Sirius XM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real. <laughs>